0: Here's a statement at the start of the talk how how we feel about our future is the biggest shaper of how we live right now how you feel how you feel the future's going to turn out is the biggest shaper for how you are right now it doesn't matter how rubbish a week you're having how you know if you're a teacher or if you work down the pit or wherever you work it doesn't matter how much grief your boss gives you if you're going to Hawaii for a fortnight on Friday, you're going to function perfectly fine throughout the week. You're just going to be able to deal with it, aren't you? It doesn't matter how, much, how many times he hammers you, whatever, whatever the story is, you're going to think, because I've got that coming up, I can cope with this now. If you can look confidently at the future, now it's going to be more successful for you. Equally, if you're able to look back, and learn. If you can look back into history, if you can look back into your childhood, if you can look back through the mistakes of your teens, whatever else it is, if you can look back, you're going to be more successful right now. So, if you're one of these people who doesn't look back and can't face the future, or if the future's traumatic for you, and you just forget to look back then right now I reckon there's a sense of generalization here but I reckon right now it's going to be difficult for somebody like that whereas if you're somebody who is confident about their future can have real reason for confidence about their future and is somebody who is able to look back at their past then I think they're the kind of people that are going to have success that's what I'm saying anyway, that's the premise a little bit on which I'm building the, the sermon. Joshua, in the story, he prescribes looking back to learn. So right the way throughout the text, you'll see, if you've been reading along at home, that there's always these stones going up. There's all these battles, and then there's stones going up to say, right, we need to look at this and mark this. And Joshua, as well, refers people back to when God's people were in Egypt. He says, look back, look what God did. Look back all the time. There's this looking back storyline. But he also asks them to look forward as well. So, so far, and it takes, I don't know if you're reading along at home, I don't know if you're familiar with the, with the story of Joshua. It takes an incredible twist, the story, at the moment. It has been up to this point, and I've seen, I've seen people's faces as we've read out the text. It's just been like a bloodbath after a bloodbath with a pause to reflect that God's provided victory, then another bloodbath, then another quest, then another people to defeat. And it's just been this, this like battle story right the way through. And you hit these chapters, in fact, pretty much halfway through the book, the second half of the book is just this, predominantly, this genteel description of a beautiful land. So you've got 12 chapters of bloody battles, and then you've got, give or take, 12 chapters of... Beautiful countryside and descriptions of what a beautiful land uh, looks like. It's a little bit like you're watching a World War II epic, Saving Private Ryan, something like that, and it's all, you can barely watch it, there's blood flying everywhere, and then somebody comes in and switches over and you put coast on, or Britain from the sky, or something like that. It's got that kind of feel to it. I was in the Barber's the other day with a bunch of other blokes, barbershop and I don't know I don't know who decides what what's gonna be on the TV in these places, but it was it was just this like drone filmed view of these Greek islands. And it was a it's a as a combination of things. It's a beautiful thing. Getting your hair cut and just watching beaches and beautiful countryside and everybody in the barbers was really everybody's in the barbers really pleased but none of us could keep our heads still. We are all going like this. But it was just and that's the kind of imagery that you get in this part Of the story. Let me give you a flavor of it. Chapter 15, 2 and 4. I'm sorry, this this isn't up on the screen. This is the first bit of the descriptive language that comes after all the battle scenes. Their southern boundary started from the bay at the southern end of the Dead Sea, crossed, I'm going to try and give it a voiceover feel, crossed over south of Scorpion Pass, continued onto Zin, and went over to the south of Kadesh Barnea. Then it ran past Hezron up to Adar and curved around to Karka. And I am saying all these perfectly correctly. It then passed along to Asman and joined the Wadi of Egypt, ending at the Mediterranean Sea. This is their southern boundary. The whole rest of it's all like that. It's intoxicating description of the country and then the people that get to live there. And kind of as I'm, so I did that thing where I tried to sit down, and force myself to read right the way through the book. And you're kind of going, well, why? This is quite a change. Why, why all of a sudden is so much time devoted to describing this place? Did, it, did the writer think this is going to keep the reader interested? So much of it is just down to description of the land. Here's the, here's the reason why. The struggle of the people of God was always pointing to this moment. It was always Heading towards the fulfilled promises of God. It was always about the land. So the descendants, and you can think right back to Abraham, had always lived in light of this promise. That's, that is the way they were supposed to live. God spoke to Abraham. He said, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to provide you. You're not going to believe it because you're an old guy. I'm going to provide you with a beautiful land. And from that land, God's presence, his ways, his people, he himself is going to be seen. And all all the rest of the story, all of this struggle along the way, this stuff that's been really hard to read, all makes sense when you see the fulfillment of the promised land. So it doesn't matter whereabouts you are in the story, if you're Isaac needing to slay your own son doesn't make sense makes sense in light of the whole story if you're sorry abraham about to slay your son if you're isaac about to be to be slain if you're an egyptian slave who's 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 heard from moses that we're going to run off and leave and he's thinking is that really a good option i'm going to just put my my trust in you and we're going to head off in this direction if you're if you're one of the warriors that stood up facing jericho thinking i'm sure marching around it is not going to be the answer I'm sure this leaves us a little bit vulnerable. This, knowing, knowing that this promise, this promised land, this land flown with milk and honey, knowing that this is at the end of it, this makes sense of everything that's gone before. It's the fuel. It's the direction. It is the order. Promised land. It gave me a bit of a reason to do a bit of a sigh, because it's been some heavy reading in Joshua, but it's all... Been about taking us to this place where the world, the Gentiles, as it's described in the Bible, can see God's people in God's place and can go, oh, that's, that's what a good God looks like. They can observe the peace that's there or that should have been there. They can observe His ways and they can encounter Him. It all makes sense when you think of the fulfillment of the promises of God. It's interesting having that thought I think it's interesting in the back of your mind. I've been watching a comedy at the moment, and I oudenard about whether I should, as a pastoral assistant, whether I should share with you what it was. Um, I'm a fan of Ricky Gervais. I don't know where that leaves me. in terms, well, has at least one one thumb up. Um, he's got a comedy out at the moment. So Ricky Gervais is, I think he's, uh, he's like the proudest atheist that exists. I think he's really pleased about it, and he tells everybody, the whole time and he's pretty current and he's pretty on trend and he's and he's got a social message to say i think and his new comedy is called the afterlife i'm not going to ask you if you've seen it i probably would say watch it not in front of the kids but watch it okay it's it's intoxicatingly good it's beautiful it's painful to watch the premise is that this man's wife dies right at the start. She dies of cancer right at the start. And this and as you look back you get to see this this brilliant awesome man crumbles just turns into the most vile, horrible guy in the absence of any kind of perceivable future. Somebody's stolen his future and he's just traumatized by it. Now it's more than just without Without future hope, life is hard and life is sad. Gervais is saying, or I think he alludes to something more than this. He's saying it's not just hard and it's sad. He's saying, I can't make sense of it. If you take if you take the future bit away, if you take the thing that I'm putting confidence in, and you take that away, life no longer makes sense to me anymore. I can't believe, I'm kind of amazed that... the. And it's, this is not the only comedy that's saying this message. I'm not going to tell you about all the comedies that I watch, but it's, been, it's blown my mind a little bit how they're all heading in, the, in this direction. That it's still the big question that our culture is asking. It's how do, I, how do I make sense of this life? Especially how do I make sense of this life if you're going to take away what I think is my future. If you're going to steal that away, I feel like you've stolen the sense away from my life. Something for you to think about if you're, if you're on the edge of the Bible or if it's something you're trying to work through or you kind of think there's a God but you don't know what to do with Him. Here's what I'm saying. I think life makes more sense. I think life makes more sense when you think about it in light of the promises of God. Life makes more sense if you think about it in light of the promises of God. In light of, in light of what God's going to do at the end when you think that it means something life when you think that it matters on a bigger scale it makes more sense think about it why do we spend so much time arguing over what is moral why does it why does it matter whether we save the refugees on the boat or not why does it matter if we're good people If it's about nothing, why does it matter? Why do we run off to Bali when we get, like me, to about 40 and we try and search for meaning to life? Why do our lives need to have any meaning? Why why do we need that? Why do we feel like we've got to give a bit back? You heard that expression? Loads of people, everybody that does something with charity, says, I just want to give a bit back. What are we trying to even up? What are we trying to level off? Why does death always feel like an unfair invasion? Why does it always feel unfair? And why does it always feel like it's something that we're going to be able to pick up and run with later on? I think one of the arguments that I think we see in Joshua and that the Bible presents is it's because we're made for more. We are created for more. There is more. That's why it doesn't make sense. So I want to tell you about two guys that, that live in light of this promise. So there's two sort, of, two sort of characters that the story projects. And I want us just to, I want to kind of tell their story. I'll do it sharpish, don't worry. A couple of minutes each. I want to proclaim them and say, look, because I think the Bible does that. It says, now look at these two guys who live in light of the promises of God. And I think there's just some awesome lessons uh, for us to learn about these two guys. So the first guy... Did you figure out which two guys these are? It's Caleb and Joshua, two, um, two old wrinklers at this point in their life. And whenever I hear Caleb and Joshua, they sound like young names, don't they? Always in my mind, Caleb, Joshua, they sound like they're going to be pretty young. Here they are, very old men. Let me read to you the account of Caleb. It'll pop up behind me. And now the people of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jephunah the Kenzanite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land. And I brought him back, a report according to my convictions. But my fellow Israelites, who went up with me, made the hearts of the people melt in fear. I, however, followed the Lord, my God, wholeheartedly." So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Just now then, very Yorkshire, isn't it? Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses while Israel moved about in the wilderness. So here I am today. Eighty-five years old. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Then Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron as his inheritance. It's a, I love, I love this story. I love the pictures. These two old men having this chat. Things that we need to know about the story. He is returning to familiar ground, and because, and he's sort of claiming the promises he's got. He said. God said, if we're faithful, he'll give us this land. And he's saying to Joshua here, he's saying, I've been faithful. I have been wholeheartedly faithful. This is, this is our land. Now, he's an 85-year-old. Now, he's, he says he's alive. He says, I'm vigorous. You've got the, like the, I imagine a, an old, 100-year-old guy at the start of a marathon just kind of limbering up. He's just like that. He's, he's like, I am ready to go. But he's eight, but He's 85. And he's talking, and this is the the gist of it. He's talking about the land that he wants to take. So they've got, they've reached this point in the storyline where they've conquered a lot of it. There's a few bits more to take. And it should be quite an easy stroll. And, Joshua, and Caleb says, see the bit I want? It's the really tricky bit. I want... Now he's 85. I want the mountains. And not only do I want the mountains, I want the mountains with the fortified cities on. So I want, I want the tough stuff. And not only do I want that, it talks about the Anakites. So the Anakites, this guy called Anak, going back a few generations, who was a giant of a guy. The Anakites have, have left this legacy of being the big dudes. And Caleb says to Joshua, two old wrinklies talking together, he says, I want I want that. Now here's Here's my question when I try and put myself in his shoes, in the shoes of this 85-year-old guy, because I'm thinking if I'm 85, the first thing I want is flat. That's going to be a significant thing. That's, that's going to be my, I want to live in a bungalow. I'm, I'm almost there already, but when I'm 85, I want it to be flat, and I wanna, I'd be saying something like, Joshua, see this land with the, with the very passive hippies who are near retirement, with the great... Pasture land with grapes. I want I'd like that, please. But that's not what Caleb asks for. Why does why does Caleb look up at the mountains? This impossible land as an 85-year-old guy and say, I want this land. Because he is convinced of the promises of God. He is living in light of the promises of God. He is convinced that this ends well. It ends for God's glory. So because of that, the bigger the obstacle, the less likely victory is, the more he will experience God's presence. The harder it is, the nearer to God he will be. The harder it is, the more God will need to show up. The harder it is, the more he will experience his God. So he looks up at that and he goes, I want that because I want God. I want to experience God in his fullest. The story goes of a shoe salesman sent to a foreign land by a British company. They send this guy off to the other side of the world and they say, go and sell our shoes. And he gets over to the other side of the world and he looks around and he's saddened. And he writes back to his employers and he says, nobody wears shoes out here. Nobody's got shoes. I'm coming back you know, sort me out some travel, I'm coming back. So this guy goes back. The company, not disturbed by this, get the next guy, they send him over to the same country. The guy gets over to the country again. He looks around, and he sees that nobody's wearing shoes, and he writes back to the company again, and he says, you're going to need to send me some more shoes. Nobody's got shoes. They're going to need some shoes. Send me thousands of shoes. I think the second guy is a bit like Caleb. Because he knew God, all he could see was opportunity. So, this wrinkly old man looks for giants up the mountains so he can experience God better. One of the songs that we sing here, a bit of an anthem of ours, I think, Oceans, has these lines Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me. Take me deeper. Then my feet could ever wander. Then my faith would be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. This song that asks us to go somewhere where we're going to be completely out of our depth, probably based on the story of Peter walking on the water. And if I'm in the boat with Peter, I'm saying, "What you?" as if I see him walking towards the edge of the boat, I'm saying, what are you doing? That's going to end terribly for you. That's the water. There's fish in there. There's a reason people don't go in there. You're just going to collapse in there. And Peter walks out of the boat. Why does he get out of the boat? Why does he go somewhere where he shouldn't really be? Because he wants to experience a God. He wants to know God. He thinks to himself, my Savior's out there. If I go where I'm uncomfortable, I'm here in the boat and it's fine. I'll know him a little bit, but if I go where I'm really out of my depth, then it's, it's him I'll get to know. It's him that will save me. So, What would you have to do with your day tomorrow morning to really experience God? What would it take? What would need to happen? There's the first guy, second guy, last guy, Joshua himself. Now, so I don't know if you noticed in the text, this is chapter 24. So I'm reading this, and I you grow to like Joshua, and you think, I want this to end well for you. You've been amazing. You've been this awesome leader of God's people. This really should be a celebratory, you know. I hope my last words are there, and people are hanging off them, and all they're ready to say how, and I say how great life is, and they go, yeah, life's great. I hope it's like that. Joshua's Joshua's last words. It's a rallying cry, but it's tinged with real sadness. Listen to what he says now. Fear the Lord. So this is verse uh, 14. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors, throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you'll serve, whether the gods of your ancestors, whether whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates. Or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. He makes I think he makes an observation here that speaks to all of humanity. It's a note for us all. He says, if you're if you're taking up space on earth, if you've got a pulse, if you've got a heartbeat. If you're walking around here, then you will be, it will be impossible for you to be a passive person. You will be somebody who is captive to earth and its charms. You will be a consumer. You'll be a dependent. You'll be an addict. You'll be somebody who serves. Notice how many times in the, in the passage it says this word, serve. He, he assumes, he knows that people are serves Bob Dylan knew this and he wrote a song with the line in it everybody serves something everybody serves somebody it's cuz we do and in and in, in a sense it's part of our charm it's a really nice thing that we are these kind of people that are addictive we've got these addictive personalities it's it's what we like about each other it's kind of a nice thing you know when you when you see when you see somebody like somebody's into fashion you see you see this celebrity. You don't just say, oh, good for you. That's a nice look for you. You say, I'm, I'm having that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have that look. You, we can't just be people who watch sport. We're not, we don't just, we're not just sport watchers. We, we call ourselves fans. We are fanatical. You can't just sit there and watch it. We're not passive. We embrace it. It overtakes us. And if you've got a pulse, you've got a heartbeat, if you're looking around... Something will consume you. This is what Joshua is saying. He says, in your life, something's going to get the best of what you've got to offer. Something out there will take up the best of that. He's saying, would you do me a favor and think about what that something is? That's point one. Second thing and so whenever, whenever you hear this rallying cry, as for me and my house, I'll serve the Lord. I always just think that's just a, it's just a big, oh yes, this is a really cool chat. But it's tinged with sadness, isn't it? He's saying life within the promises of God can be a solitary experience. As for me and my house, he's been on this awesome journey with all these people. He's had this incredible ride where we've seen God's hand at work things that we've not seen God do amazing things and yet he still looks back at the people and he's thinking and he says as for me and my house see he's lived this life where he's been in the minority he's been two of the twelve spies that went to spy out Canaan and ten came back and they were all negative and he was one of the two who came back he knows what it's like to be in that minority. He's lived his life hanging on to the words of God. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. He's lived this life where, where that's been the story for him and he's watched as people around about him don't go down that road. And he knows, as an old man he looks back and he says, this, here's my wisdom that I'm passing on. This might well be a lonely road. I think... We know a little bit about that in our endeavours. If God's got a hold on your life at all, shapes you at all, we find yourself not gossiping at work, you find yourself standing up for the persecuted, you find yourself trying to be a half-decent human being. This doesn't, this doesn't often draw people to you. It often can be a solitary experience and it takes him to the point at the end of the story it gets more sad Joshua Joshua doubts whether the people are going to get there so it says in chapter 24 uh, verse 19 Joshua talks to the people he says you're not able to serve the Lord after all after all that after all that he's been through this is his parting shot it's really sad This is the end of the book. We've taken you on this big journey. Joshua gets there with the people who's gone through all this, all these amazing faith experiences. Joshua says, you're not able to serve the Lord. He's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. He's saying to the people, I don't think, I don't think you're going to make this. I don't think you're going to get through this. And if you read on to the next book in the Bible, he's, he's not far off. Right? And he kind of alludes in asking this question, he's kind of saying, I'm not sure actually what on earth would need to happen in order for you to be able to live lives where you could look back and learn or look forward with real confidence, where you could be people who could constantly see the bigger picture. I'm not sure what on earth God would need to do to have that kind of breakthrough in your life. I think. I think I, I know what he's coming from. Life is often, as human beings on earth, we are consumed by now. Do you have that as well? Do you, do you, ever, do you ever just you just wake up one morning and you think, I don't seem to have five minutes. I can't think out, outside of anything other than what's going on right now. I feel like I'm just, I'm not seeing the big picture. And maybe you go away, and have a holiday you have a glass of wine and you're on a beach somewhere and you look back and, and then you get a glimpse of it you go oh I need to think a bit more about my past I need to think a bit more about my future but most of the time we're, we're kind of trapped in this bubble of now we don't we don't easily learn from the past and we don't easily live in light of this if you're a Christian this, this future that God's got for us it's not there the whole time I'm, I'm like that often I think tomorrow will come and it's how can I get through tomorrow not what are the big plans of God? This is one of the reasons, this human habit is one of the reasons that the story of the cross is not just a story, not just a story for me, but an essential element to any success I'm going to have in my life. Because when I, when I look back to learn, can look back through the lessons of my teenage years, can look back through human history, but when I look back to that guy, Jesus. When I look back to him, he is somebody who I can trust completely. He is somebody, even now, whose every word stands up, whose every word shapes my life. And he is somebody whose actions, as he forgave people, as he shaped a new world, and ultimately as he died on a cross, and rose from a cross, walked away from death means that I can look forward with real confidence. Means that, means that Monday morning, which might be terrible, I might get the worst news of my life, my boss might give me a hard time, <laughs> whatever that is, whatever that is, I can look forward and know with real confidence. Joshua asks the question, kind of observe it. Where do you come from? Where are you from? You human beings, where are you from? What is the church? Followers of Jesus, descendants of Israel, sons of Abraham, children of the Creator God. We live in light of the promises of God. We're like Caleb who chose to face the giants so that he could see more of God. We're like Joshua, who chose the road less traveled because he knew it would lead him to an experience of God.